Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Lord, that we ask that you would be with Dave this morning and that, that our ears would be open. And Lord, would you uh, be with the other services today? And uh, Lord, would you bless us? Would you use us? Would you break us? Would you mold us? Would you have your will? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we were uh, rushing in at the last minute, which is kind of the way my head is right now. It's all scrambled. It hasn't booted up yet. So I asked Karen to pick the psalm this morning. So she picked Psalm 147. And uh, my guidelines, uh, when I, uh, I said, hey, pick, pick out a psalm for us this morning, I said, pick out a psalm of uh, healing of a nation, of restoration. And so if you look at Psalm 147, Psalm 147 is about uh, the healing of the nation of Israel after their deportation to Babylon and when they had the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. But even though what we're looking at this morning predates that by uh, several hundred years, nonetheless, it's about uh, restoration and healing of a nation, at least in intent, and we're going to look at uh, the way people get in the way of that. Let's go ahead and somebody like to read Psalm 147? Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Yes, praise is pleasant and appropriate. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He names all of them. Our Lord is great and has awesome power. There is no limit to his wisdom. The Lord lifts up the oppressed, but not <coughs> to the ground. Offer to the Lord a song of thanks. Sing praises to our God to the accompaniment of a harp. He covers the sky with clouds, provides the earth with rain, and causes grass to grow on the hillsides. He gives food to the animals and to the young ravens when they chirp. He is not enamored with the strength of a horse, nor is he impressed by the warrior's strong legs. The Lord takes delight in his faithful followers and in those who wait for his loyal love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he makes the bars of your gates strong. He blesses your children within you. He brings peace to your territory. He abundantly provides for you the best grain. He sends his command through the earth. Swiftly his order reaches its destination. He sends the snow that is white like wool. He spreads the frost that is white like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand the cold wind he sends? He then orders it all to melt. He breathes on it, and the water flows. He proclaims his word to Jacob, his statutes and regulations to Israel. He has not done so with any other nation. They are not aware of his regulations. Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, 
when I read through this, and I um, have studied at length the, what happened uh, to the Jewish people when they were conquered by Babylon and went into captivity, and how that changed them, um, both good and bad, and how they responded to the correction of God and to the, uh, to the way that he was leading them, even when they didn't expect that that's what he would do. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the story of, of the Jewish people when they went into Babylon, but they basically lost everything and were completely destroyed, and uh, the world attempted to change their identity. That's what the story of uh, Daniel is about. It's about how the world, the kingdoms of, of men pressing upon us are attempting to change the way that we think and the person that we are. And Daniel, um, although not the protagonist in the story, is one who is a foil and stands firm to show the strength of God in uh, working among men to preserve men and to restore men. And that's what's going on in the world. It's the story of the whole Bible. And so that's why I think the psalm is particularly appropriate because where we're at in Samuel, we're approaching the end of Samuel, Samuel and hopefully we'll move through fairly quickly in the last part. And I know that you laugh at that, but <laughs> we're actually in chapter 20 today. And uh, if you look at the, um, the outline of where we're at, I call it the anatomy of rebellion. Uh, the intent of the rebellion is to steal the heart of the people. And that uh, when you look at how uh, systems of men work, kingdoms of men work, that's what it's all about. It's about trying to change the heart, and ultimately in changing the heart, you change the, the mind and the choices that people make and the actions that they take and ultimately you can change destiny. And people that understand how you bring about change utilize this feature a lot. Um, and we all recognize it. You know, I used to push against it when I was uh, uh, studying how sales works. And I'm not a salesman, by the way. I'm, a, I'm an engineer. But... I had my own business for a while, and when you have your own business, you're always selling. You're selling yourself, you're selling your product. Um, and I hated it because every morning I'd wake up and I was looking for a job. And if you've ever, well, well a lot of us have been in that position where you're beating the streets looking for work, uh, it gets very tiring. I got very tired of trying to sell, so I figured I'm going to learn how to do this well, right? And that's when I started looking at what's going on in, in a relational transaction that results in a sale. You're trying to, to change a person's heart about whatever it is that you're trying to sell them, right? And so in many ways, we have this negative image of sales. And that's why when people get into uh, sharing their faith, they feel like they're doing a sales job, right? That evangelism is about sales. Well... It's not about selling something that is uh, perishable or that has no value or no worth. It's about uh, presenting the very heart of God, which is infinitely valuable and never uh, gets rusty and deteriorates. Gravity doesn't rule in heaven. 
God rules in heaven, right? And I think about getting older, and I tease people, I say, yeah, gravity rules, because what happens is, is it gets harder and harder to fight against gravity every day. Um, it gets more painful and, and challenging, and ultimately, gravity rules. It wins. And in God's kingdom, gravity doesn't rule. Um, the heart of God is infinitely valuable and he wants to give it away. So it isn't sales in the sense of convincing you to give something uh, in order to get. Rather, it's sharing the heart of God so that he can continue giving it away. And I understand that what rebellion is, is it's about trying to change that heart so that you get rather than give. And that's what Absalom was about. He was trying to steal the heart of the people so that he could get the kingdom. That he could get it by force and not through the, God's design. <clears throat> because God design, does design us a certain way to operate in his world according to his design. And Absalom may have actually been the future king if he would have had a heart after God. Because he was actually in line to the throne. Although he shouldn't have been. It was because he murdered his brother. Mm-hmm that he got into that position. But nonetheless, the natural course of events could have been that God redeemed him and changed him in such a way that he would have been uh, a leader after God's heart just like his father. And we've been looking at what does it mean to be a person after God's heart, right? What does it look like when a person after God's heart chooses the wrong thing, when they choose the kingdom of the world, when they fall into sin, as David did? And he didn't do it just once. He did it repeatedly. And he didn't just make small little uh, trips as he's walking down the road. He totally fell flat on his face. He committed adultery. He committed murder or was part of murder. Um, He had a lot of problems. But what do you see consistently about the heart of David? Now that we've been studying him for this period of time, what do you see consistently about this heart that is a heart after God? Anybody want to throw out a... Repentance. Repentance. It's a heart that... Do you know what repentance is? I say this rhetorically because you probably all do know. But repentance is when you come to an understanding of the truth. In other words, you see what is real and true. You see what is real and true about who you are and what the nature of the heart is. And you see what is true about God and about his heart and the nature of who he is. And in the process of that, you turn from holding on to that which you've held so tightly, you being king, to opening your hands and embracing the true king. So it's a turning. It's a, it's a perspective thing where you see reality as it truly is. I mean, that's what usually happens when a person comes into the presence of God. A lot of things might bring them there uh, in our sinful nature. But when you get to that point where you recognize truly what the condition of your heart is and how futile and hopeless that is, then you turn to God, who is full of hope, who gives you a future. I was thinking about addiction yesterday and driving down the road, and I used to teach uh, addiction recovery seminars and uh, participated in that recovery ministry. And what 
addiction is about, I used to call it the chase. Because it's when people believe a lie and they will continue to pursue that in, in the face of evidence that proves otherwise. In other words, they believe that the drug or the drink or whatever it is, um, and there are a lot of different kinds of addiction, um, that the hope that it promises is real. But what ends up happening is you end up hopeless, and yet you can't seem to, it never fulfills, it never satisfies, it never meets the need. And so you chase it, because you're not willing to give up a lie. And that's kind of the way sin is. We chase it because it promises us something. I mean, that's how it entered into the world, was with a promise that there would be a change that would make us, make us better, make us God. And yet, it never, ever satisfies. It never, ever meets the need. And so we get caught in this chase. And what repentance is, is when you come to realize that, and you, you say, I'm done with the chase, and you turn to God. So, with that said, repentance, I think, is one of the key features of a heart of a person after God. Can anybody think of another, other words that would go with that? If repentance is seeing reality, yes, sir? Um, well, to me, David is not a perfect man. But he's been used by God mightily, and he's been anointed to be the king. Um, so two words come to mind when I think of his life, and that is walk worthy. <laughs> now he doesn't always walk worthy, right? But he wants to walk worthy. So when he gets called on the fact that he sinned or he's messed up or whatever, he He'll do the repentance, he'll do the, the one in three deal and go go the other way and try to make it right, I think. Yep. So so to me the whole man after God's own heart thing isn't that he's perfect. Right. And <laughs> he's not. Um, but that he's trying to walk worthy, and that's something I'm trying to learn. <laughs> and and I think that captures it well. Repentance is that change of heart, but then something else is required, a walk. And it's a walk, you call it walk worthy. And so if you look at what the instruction in the Bible is as to the appropriate response to the gospel message, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen by a whole lot of folk. And the result of that is forgiveness of sin and new life. New life, not a remaking of the old life, but we're actually born again. The appropriate response to that is to repent, to know that that's true and real and change in your heart through the 180, and then to believe, to walk worthy. And that's what David continually represents a heart after God is one that is repentant and believes. Believes in the face of things that are unbelievable. Trusts God 
in the face of things that look in the world's eyes as if they're totally going nowhere, that it can't possibly succeed. And what you find is, is that God repeatedly chooses the underdogs in these situations in life to show who he really is and what real life is and what the choice is that we need to make. And that's what's being presented all the way through Samuel as we look at the, the uh, development of these characters, and especially David. So what's happened is, is that there's a rebellion against that. Sin has risen up. And it's not just a, a one-time, oh, gee, I thought I'd do this today type of a deal, but it actually was something that was planned over the course of many years. When you really read about Absalom and what he did, um, this was no, no uh, whim. He actually planned and plotted and worked towards this very actively. Um, and what it did is when the rebellion broke out, it caused the rightful king to have to flee. And so what you see is how David, in the midst of uh, everything breaking down around him, responds with a heart after God. He responds that way with loving kindness and mercy. Right? And that's why I love the psalm that we just read, because that's what it talks about. It talks about returning to loving kindness and mercy. Let me go back to the psalm real quick. It says, uh, The Lord favor those who fear him. This is verse 11 of Psalm 147. Those who wait for his loving kindness. Right? So there's... Uh, that's what David is displaying as he goes into retreat. He's displaying God's loving kindness and mercy. He's displaying a trust that God has got this thing under control, even if he doesn't understand it, to the point where he wants to make sure that the priests and the ark are back in Jerusalem, that the, uh, the scepter of rule is maintained in Jerusalem. His heart is for God and his people. And that's what David does in retreat. And then what you see is you see that God is not uh, foiled just because men are busy working up their schemes. And we saw the clash of the counselors in Ahithophel and David's counselors that came in and confounded the council of Ahithophel. And then we saw the clash of the armies because rebellion always leads to this. It always leads to a confrontation. And we see it presented in Hollywood all the time, you know, good and evil clash. And these days, I mean, it used to be that good always triumphed over evil in Hollywood. These days, that's not necessarily true. And that the world presents that evil is just, con you know, part of the course of events. And sometimes it triumphs. But that's not what God says. God always triumphs. So in the clash of the armies, what you saw was is it was a very short battle, very focused, but the one who was the seed of rebellion got caught up between heaven and earth and ended up losing his life. Even though that wasn't the heart of David. David didn't desire that life would be lost. He desired that reform would occur. And yet there was one who's, who saw this as... Uh, just yet further activities of the kingdoms of the world and killed the rebeller. So Joab killed Absalom. Right? And what we then saw last week was the return of David 
to Jerusalem. And he followed the same kind of path uh, that we saw in the retreat, where there was a, a retreat uh, through the eastern gate of uh, Jerusalem. Well, at that time it wasn't an eastern gate. It was down through the Kidron Valley over the Mount of Olives and then down through the uh, ascent to Badamim, down into the, um, the Rift Valley and then up to uh, Manaheim. And I, I know I pointed that out multiple, multiple times, but the reason why is because if you read uh, some of the end times theology, popular literature today, but also if you look at what it says in the Bible about return of Messiah, the exit of God's presence among men and the return of Messiah, that's the same path that, that we see coming back into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives in. And that's what we read last week, was we read about the restoration of the king. And that we realized that in the course of that, People didn't believe it. Even though they saw the king coming back, they still didn't believe it, and they still didn't trust God. And there was almost a civil war that broke out. Because the people didn't really embrace that David was the king, that he was the anointed and chosen one. And as a result, David did uh, something that was unheard of. He actually took the general from the opposing army and placed him as the general over his forces. Do you realize that that occurred? When we were going through chapter 19, we're going to find it here, and David is restoring uh, various people as he's uh, returning back into Jerusalem. 1913. Yes. He says, uh, say to Amasa, are you not bone, uh, not of my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also, if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So, if you recall, what happened is, in, is back in 17, where Absalom, um, when David left, Joab left with him, Absalom made uh, Amasa his general. So this was the general of the opposing the rebellion, the rebellious force. And interestingly, they, they are related. Joab and Amasa are related. Um, they're cousins, I believe. Um, so, and, and David and Joab were related. So when he says, are you not bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's saying, you know, we're relations, even though we're separated by this rebellion. And there's, you know, all sorts of things we could read into that. But what David's doing is he's taking a risk. He's saying, I believe that what we need to do is heal the nation. Let's heal the nation by taking a person that has a good heart, even if they were misled, and put them into a position where they can assist in healing and protecting the nation. He did the same thing with... Uh, the one who threw dirt clods at him and cursed him, right? And that that particular person, uh, Shemai, son of Gera, reading in chapter 19, verse 16, the Benjamite, uh, what he did is he gathered a bunch of the tribe of Benjamin and he came down and laid himself before the king. And he apologized, he repented. And David's men said, hey, chop off his head. 
The dude was a rebel. He's, he's serving his own needs. You can't trust this man. And David took another risk. And he forgave. Same thing is true with the house of Saul and Mephibosheth. So what you see is as David's returning back into uh, the kingdom because he's following the hand of God, he's doing what God would do. He's forgiving. He is restoring. He is uniting. And yet, it's still a struggle of the kingdom of men against the kingdom of God. The, the, the end game is not being played out here. It's just showing us what's going on with God in the world. In other words, there's still a, a battle yet to come. There's still a rebellion going on and an effort to win people's hearts. And the end of that has not yet come. When that comes and Messiah returns, he actually puts an end to this kind of rebellion. Right? And he does that, we read that he rules with an iron scepter. In other words, he brings justice. But justice and mercy come together. And we're also going to experience the mercy of God as he brings about restoration. Well, let's look at what happens in this broken human condition where the author of Samuel is, is, or authors of Samuel are telling us not so much about what God condones, but what about what really occurs in the world. So let's go ahead and read chapter 20. Chapter 20, 2 Samuel. It says, Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So what's he saying there? We're out of here. Yeah, yeah he's saying we're out of here. Yeah, we're not, we're Why is he saying we're out of here? He's saying that we're not of the same tribe as David, but also the our future is not in David. We have no inheritance in him. We have no portion in him. In other words... And it's really important to the Jewish people that they be able to establish who their daddy is. Because there was a promise given, a promise that goes back to Abraham from their perspective. We understand it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Does anybody know what the promise, the covenant that was made with Abraham was? I, I use a, an alliteration to help pull forward. It was God's people in God's place with God's presence. People, place, and presence. And that the covenant with Abraham was about that there would be a, um, a separation in God's eyes of those that were his. So we call that today the elect. Those that are chosen. It means to be chosen. So God would choose a people and that they would have a place and that in, the, in an understanding from Abraham it would actually be a physical place in the land because you remember he left the place of his inheritance and his people and he came to a new land where he had no people and he had no place. 
he was what they call a sojourner. He was a traveler. And he uh, lived in a tent, and he established a Bedouin lifestyle, which was, well, I can't say he established it, it was already there, but he was a Bedouin of that day in uh, the land of Canaan, and he had no people and no place. And God said, you will have a people, and you will have a place. In fact, you'll be a father of nations. That there will be so many people uh, as a part of this covenant and blessing that they're more numerous than the stars that you can observe and count. They'll be that numerous. And that the place that you'll have will be established eternally. And that's great. There's a people and a place. But the third piece of that promise was really, really important. God said, you will be my people and I will be present with you. That God wouldn't just set things up, wind up the watch, and walk away. That's not the way that God is. Rather, he's intimately involved with his people. That he would actually be uh, flesh and bone with them. That he would be their king. That was the promise to Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham and the Jewish people embraced that very literally. We have an inheritance in the land. It was divided up by Joshua. He said there are 12 tribes, and we're going to divide up the land thusly, and everybody had their inheritance, their portion. And so when they say we have no inheritance, no future in the son of Jesse, and we have no portion in David, they're saying the promise is not through David. <coughs> Therefore, we're not going to follow him. Let's follow him. That's that very seed of rebellion, right? They thought they had a better way. God's way. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king, from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took, ten, uh, took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left, to keep the house, and he placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them so that they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. What, what did we say about the concubines? Anybody remember? What was the significance of the concubines? David left them behind. Absalom came in and defiled them. They were the evidence of the scepter. That's right. They were the evidence uh, of the rule, of, of the power of the king. And that um, David... Uh, essentially got concubines from Saul when he took reign. And for Absalom to take and defile, to take those concubines as his own, was him making uh, a claim that he had the power of the kingship, that he had the scepter. And what David did is when he came back, he realized that these women had been abused and misused, and that the, the power of the scepter was not the concubines, even though that would be the symbol. Uh, the power of the scepter was God's appointment, God's anointing. And he wanted to protect these women, so he set them apart. And we recognize that in the, the process of how kingdoms and administrations worked in that day, that people got hurt, that there was a cost associated with a rebellion. And that's what happened here. These women, it says, were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. That's a, that's a terrible thing. 
For a Jewish woman, that's a terrible it's a terrible children. Yeah. So there's a cost of rebellion. David desired to protect and to provide. So what did he do? He placed them under guard and provided them with substance. Right? So he provided for them and he protected them. But he couldn't undo the harm that had been done in a rebellion. There was a cost of rebellion. Then, yes? So is this the first mention of the separation of Israel and Judah? Uh, it's a good question. There, there was always uh, a tribal um, <coughs> infighting, right? All the way back to Jacob. The brothers were always, you know, not happy with each other and had uh, all sorts of ways of scheming, you know, to the point of taking uh, Joseph, who had his father's favor, and they interpreted that as blessing. And they said, well, we'll solve this problem. We'll throw the kid. We'll kill him. And then uh, uh, Reuben or Judah? Which one was it? Reuben. Said, no, who's the oldest who should have been uh, saying this? He said, no, let's not kill him. Got a better idea. Let's throw him in a pit. Because Reuben intended to rescue him and, and present him back to his father. But it didn't happen that way. Uh, he ended up getting sold into slavery. So you see that, and this, this goes all the way back. It goes back to Jacob. It goes back uh, further than that. It goes back to the, the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. It goes back further than that. You know, I mean, we can take this back to the Garden of Eden, and what came out of that was Cain and Abel. Right? So you see this kind of, you know, you're my brother, not my brother, or you're my brother, but I'm better than you. Uh, type thing going on from the very beginning. Well, that's the seed of rebellion. Yeah, but is this the, the precursor to the kingdoms? It is. And that was, I pointed that out at the end last week, is that what, what has happened is, is that that, um, that seed of rebellion is not uh, extinguished. Even though David comes back and attempts to restore the nation and to heal the nation, um, they're not united. <coughs> They may be united uh, for a, a short period of time, and it's only a short period of time, the duration of uh, Solomon's rule. So maybe we have another 50 years here where they remain united, but throughout the course of that, there's still this seed of rebellion and this seed of division. Um, it's a false unity. And that's what you're seeing, is that, that there's a division north-south, but it's you know, the north, the ten tribes there, they fought with each other. So they were united against Judah, but they weren't united against each other, right? So you see that this whole idea of not being able to get along has is, is got deep roots. And anybody that tells you today, oh, gee, can't we all just be friends and get along together? <laughs> yeah, in heaven, when we all are submissive to the true king, absolutely. When we all see who we really are, absolutely. But until we get to that point, that's not going to happen. And that's what you see playing out here. Okay. Yes? Do the tribes maintain their individual identities <clears throat> until when? Uh, when are they? To this day. So a guy can tell you he's a Benjamite or a Levite? Some people will trace back. I mean, it gets pretty muddled after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when they were really scattered broadly. 
But, but there still is identity, some identity in the Jewish nation. Yes, absolutely. And they don't, uh, it's not like in the day of Ezra where they recognized that the tribes were uh, becoming, um, I'll, I'll use the word polluted, which is a bad word, but they were becoming uh, non-pure because of intermarriage with peoples around them and things like that. So at that point in time, they said, hold it, you know, if you want to serve as a priest, you need to show your lineage. Today, we have people serving uh, as uh, rabbis that are not, that couldn't, you know, have a clean lineage. But people are still set apart as Jews. And it's not just religious Jews, it's national Jews. I mean, when Hitler wanted to destroy the Jews, um, he was looking at national Jews. He wasn't looking at their religious preference. So he wanted to take everybody who came from that line and wipe them out, or those ten tribes, twelve tribes. Um, so yeah, it still exists today. And we understand when we get to the end times that there will be uh, 144,000 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes that are presented that are still uh, not just nationally Jews but religiously Jews. So, pardon? Well, it, it still exists. And, you know, they, we'll read about the different tribes and, and the different parts that they have throughout the history. But David's attempt was to unify. And he did that by calling uh, Amasa, who was the general of all of the tribes in is his general. He says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call out men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him, along with the Carathites and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at a large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it uh, was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at its waist, at its waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, It is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. I'm going to stop right there. So what's, what's happening here? David's attempting to unify the nation. So he appoints a different general than Joab. The guy takes a little bit longer than the three days that he's given to get his task done doesn't give us any editorial comment on that. We don't know if his heart's not into it, or if he read some obstacle. You know, who knows? Maybe he got to Hebron and they, you know, waylaid him in the pub. We don't know. So, it isn't a commentary on Amasa. But what happened is, is that David saw that the rebellion was going so fierce and so fast, that if he didn't do something immediately, it was going to get away. And that the opportunity for unity was not going to, was going to pass. And so he says, okay, um, let me send my mighty men. Notice he doesn't send Joab, but he sends Joab's brother. David said to Abishai, uh, 
go pursue these guys and then take the mighty men with you. And Joab, being one of the mighty men, goes out. And uh, he gets to this point where they're in Gibeon, which is in Benjamin, and he comes up and, and he runs into Amasa. So Amasa wasn't far behind. He just didn't quite make it in time. And Amasa says, hey, how's it going, bro? And, uh, and Joab comes up. Amasa was not on guard against the sword, which was in Joab's hand. So he, Joab, struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab said to Abishai, his brother, uh, and his brother pursued, pursued Sheba, son of Bigri. So you read the story. What happens is, is Abishai says, how's it, or Amasa says, how's it going, bro? And Joab says, oh, it's going fine. Grabs him by the beard, pulls him forward as he's coming up like this with his knife. And he cuts him across his belly and everything is torn out. It's a very terrible, yeah, graphic way. But you got to remember how these guys were clad and armed and things like that. Um, if you're going to take somebody out and you're going to do it, you know, by deception like this, that's the way you would do it. And so he cuts the guy such that it's a, a mortal wound and he leaves him there to bleed to death. And that's, that's what's happening. It says, now there uh, stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by stood still. So Amasa was a respected man. He was a leader. He was the one that was going to unify the people. And Joab did this horrible, deceptive thing and killed him. And he didn't even, didn't even bother to uh, do anything about that. He just left him there in the middle of the road. And then there was a call to take sides. Somebody says, hey, whoever's with Joab, stand up now and be counted. Or are you with this guy dying on the road here? That was the, that's what was happening. That division was being put to the point of test. You're, which way are you going to walk? Are you going to walk true and faithful? Um, after the heart of God and the one that he's appointed? Or are you going to follow the strength of men? Right? That's what's being asked. And some rep rapidly responded, we're going to follow the strength of men, the might of horses, the might of warriors. And when we read Psalm 147 this morning, it said it's not the, the, the strength of men, it's not the might of the warrior or the strength of the horse. That's not where victory and wholeness lies. And so some, when they came by and they saw Amasa, they just stopped and they said, whoa, what do we do? So when they, uh, when they saw this, people stopping and not joining in into Joab's rebellion, because Joab's now rebelling, just like Absalom did, they pulled Amasa off to the side and covered him up so people couldn't see. Isn't that kind of the way it works? Right? When rebellion happens, 
and it makes its play. It wants to cover it up so people don't see what the real nature of it is. Because if you see the real nature of it, it stops you in your tracks. That's what's going on here. So, as we read on, it says, As soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel, to Abel, even beth Makkah, and all the Barites, uh, and they were... And they were gathered together and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wrecking destruction in order to topple the wall. So if you look at the, the map, we'll show you how far they chased this guy. So this is going to be. I'm going to have to go smaller here. Okay, so they started down here. This is Jerusalem right here. And this is the Benjamin Plateau right here. So this is where he killed Amasa, which is this little dot right here. If I blew it up, you see that's Gibeon. So here's where that play came. They chased this guy all the way up to here. So this was a long foot race tracking this guy down, trying to extinguish this rebellion. Now, do you think Joab was trying to extinguish the rebellion and unite the nation? Not, not the picture that I'm painting of Joab. The guy's doing his own deal. He's just using um, the statement of David, let's stop this rebellion, is his cover to justify in the people's eyes what he's doing. But the heart of Joab is to wreck destruction. That's what he's about doing. He's going to stop anybody that gets in his way and keeps him from what he wants. Didn't he do that in the beginning? Wasn't he the guy that was on the other Solomon's, not Solomon's, uh, Saul's son's side way back when? And then there was an uprising? I'm not sure which incident you're talking about. With Jonathan? Or Jonathan, no. Oh, well, he... With the son. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what you might be referring to. I mean, it was Joab that helped bring Absalom back. Joab brought in the woman from Tekoa to spin a yarn and to convict David. See, David, he's looking for what God's speaking to him. And he'll hear that from any source. You'll hear that from a woman that um, is of no uh, consequence to him, right? A woman from Tekoa. You'll hear it from Abigail. We're going to find out he's going to hear it from another woman. And it's interesting that God brings these people to speak truth and to bring restoration um, that are the least likely to do that. And that's what we're seeing happen here says, Then a wise woman called from the city, Here, here, please tell Joab, come here, that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly, they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peace, peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, 
Even a mother in Israel, why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? So what's she saying to him? No guesses? She's, she's saying, you know, this place that you're at is a place where we would resolve disputes, not bring uh, destruction. This isn't a place of conflict. This is a place of resolution. It's a place of restoration. This is a place where God's wisdom speaks. And I'm loyal to that. I'm all about shalom. You know, shalom is when uh, it means, we translate it peace often, but what it really means is it means according to God's design, completeness or wholeness. She says, I'm all about shalom. I'm all about peace. That's what she says. And that she's faithful. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, far be it. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. So Joab gets called on the carpet. This woman humbles herself, comes before him, makes herself vulnerable, and says, you realize this isn't of God at all, what you're doing. And Joab says, well, I'm not doing that. That's not me. That's not what I'm about. I don't know. I know that they were placed in different locations. Uh, I don't know. The, um, the study I did in preparation for this didn't inform me that that was a, a city of refuge. I know they're placed strategically around. I don't know if that was one or not. Uh, I didn't interpret it that way. But I'll check and find out. So uh, Joab says, that's not what I'm uh, up to. He says, such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, son of Bichri, by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. <laughs> Don't worry, justice will be done. Right? At the hand of a woman, no less. At the hand of a woman, or at the word of a woman. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king in Jerusalem. Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of jo, uh, Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelites. Pelites. And Adoram was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jarite, was also a priest to David. So, from 23 to 26, you're basically seeing the conclusion of this section. That's the way that the, the, uh, the editor of this section puts the bookend on it. He says, okay, this was the administration, these were the players, um, this is the end of the matter. These are the guys that were left. What I want to point out is that rebellion has a cost. There is a plan of restoration. If you leave it to humanity, 
it's not going to be what you expect. It's going to be a Joab making a power grab. That doesn't mean God can't use that, because the rebellion, in fact, ended here, at least in this time. But the seeds were still there. It wasn't really resolved. What happened was, is that this one person who was leading the revolt was stopped. But the rebellion was still there. And it's going to erupt years later. And not that many years in the future. The same thing's true if, if we look at the means of men as a resolution to rebellion and conflict. So, um, last century we had the war to end all wars. Right? Which preceded the Second World War. <laughs> Did it end all wars? No. Did World War II end all wars? No. Um, did any of the conflicts that we've had, including the current one in Afghanistan, end the rebellion? It might bring what they call peace. So some will cry peace and safety. But that's not what real peace is. That's not what real safety is. There is a way in God's kingdom that things are restored and made whole. And it's in the heart. It's not, it's a battle for the hearts of men. It's not uh, a battle for the turf of men. And that's what we see playing out in the world, is these power plays for turf and power and influence. Let's go ahead and, uh, and close here, unless there's questions. And, you know, you're, you may be right, because of the, I didn't read it as a, a city of refuge, but I'll verify that. Uh, it was so far north in Dan, this didn't even occur to me that that might be a city of refuge. And of course, if it was a city of refuge, then you build siege rounds against it, that's a bad thing. But what I look at is not so much the city, but what it's telling us about um, the condition of people's hearts and what it contributes to the larger story. It would be a greater offense if it was a city of refuge, but it would still be an offense either way. Any questions? We're going to finish up. Uh, I know you don't believe it, but we are going to finish Samuel. And it's going to go very, very quickly because uh, we're going to see a portion of Samuel that is not uh, chronologically ordered, it's thematically ordered. And in the middle of that is a song or a poem. And it's telling us, it's giving us a summary about what this whole plan of God is. We should be able to move through it very quickly because um, what you're going to see is you're going to see these things, these themes referenced and all kind of come together just quickly, quickly, quickly. And that's what Samuel is about. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, come and hear from your word today. Lord, uh, ask that these words would not just tickle our ears, but penetrate our heart and make a difference in the way that we live. That uh, we would seek you and see you. That you would convict our hearts, that we'd be able to turn from those things of 
that are sinful that we hold so tightly to and let go of them and embrace you and your truth. Um, that we would be repentant and believing and faithful. Uh, Lord, please change our hearts in that way. Lord, uh, equip us, protect us, and provide for us as we go out in this world. Lord, that you've uh, left us here in this world uh, to be your ambassadors, that uh, we have an opportunity and a responsibility uh, to serve you in this world and to proclaim you. And we just ask that you would give us that opportunity and protect us and provide for us in the midst. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would be with Pastor Bob this morning and uh, the presentation of your word and the vision that he's presenting for our church this year as we go forward. Lord, I just again, I just ask that you would touch our hearts. Keep us, protect us till next week. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.